Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about the China wine market. And we have two guests, Nicole Mao, sales and marketing director and partner at Nimbility Asia, and Ian Ford, the founding partner at Nimbility Asia. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if you could each give us a brief overview of your background. Ian, as the founding partner, why don't we start with you to kind of give a brief overview so our listeners understand what's your background in the wine market in Sure, sure. I'll try to make it brief. It started in 1995. I moved to China working for Seagram at that time, Seagram Spirits and Wine Group. So that meant Martel Cognac and the launch of Chivas Regal in China. So I worked for Seagram for about five years. And in 99, I started a company called Summergate with the goal of getting after the emerging wine market in China, which at that time was still very, very embryonic. I mean, I think it was the total volume of wine imported into China was about 250,000 cases, nine liter cases, when we started Summergate. So it was all upside from there, obviously. <laughs> so we set up Summergate, we started importing, we started to, to establish brand agencies. And then it was a 15 year run from there, building that business up into one of the leading importers of wine in China. We expanded into the spirits category, we expanded into mineral water. Well, I guess to make a long story short, I, I sold that business at the end of 2014 in its entirety to Woolworths of Australia. And then in the beginning of 2018, after a bit of a hiatus, established Nimbility together with Francesca Martin and Polly Aylwin Foster. And Nicole joined us a bit later as a partner as well. And we set up Nimbility really to address the problem that a lot of producers were having, not only in China, but across Asia, of just too much distance from the markets, not enough market insight and knowledge, very opaque markets where they couldn't really figure out what was going on. And we felt there was a very important role for us to play in stewarding these producers in the region, providing them with a, a blueprint or a roadmap to the markets and helping them do two big things. One is route to market. So how do they get to the consumer that they want to reach all the way from the importer through down through to the retailer, et cetera? And then the messaging, communication, activation of their story and their brand and their product, whatever it might be. So that was the origin of Nimbility. We set that up in 2018. And uh, despite pandemic craziness and all kinds of other things, it's gone pretty well. And Nicole, do you want to give us a brief overview of how your background in wine in the China market? Yeah, sure. Uh, so before joining Nimbility, I started, in my view, quite early on, around 2009, joined AAC, actually. <laughs> that was my first role into the wine business and kind of just somehow found my way through going to wine. And I found it really interesting 
because you know, as a Chinese, we don't usually have any relationship in growing up with wine, or it's very niche, very new thing. So I started working with ASC for a few years, and then moved to、uh, Villa Maria from New Zealand. They were looking for someone to be based in the market. So part of what the part service that Nimbility does is. Having wineries, helping wineries to establish themselves in the market, and Villa Maria at the time had the fund to actually have one employee in the market. So I was that employee and helping Summergate. Summergate was the and still is the distributor. So works hand by side by side with Summergate, and that's how I got to know Ian as well. Many years, eight years at Villa Maria, and then when Ian set up Nimbility, I thought, "Ah, this sounds really interesting. It's a, it's definitely kind of something for the future, for long-term development for the market, and that's how we are here now." So it sounds like you're both a go-to-market partner and also a almost researcher, if you want to call it that, providing transparency into the market. In the for the go to market side, maybe Ian, you can you have a better view on this. What are the services you provide? Do you actually import and sell wines as well? We don't transact at all, so we act effectively like the export team for a producer. So what we'll do is the first thing we do with any new client is we'll have a, an overarching strategy session where we'll talk about their product, their price structure, their volumes, their expectations and ambitions. And then we try to adapt that or craft that into a go-to-market strategy and, and align that with the right partners, right? So, if you're a very entree-oriented sommelier type of wine and you want to be in all the Michelin restaurants and five-star hotels, etc., that's a very, very different go-to-market approach than if you're a big supermarket brand and you've got very competitive prices and you want to go for volume and you want to go into Metro and Sam's Club and Carrefour and Yonghui and all of that. So, so we'll do a big strategy session and then we'll we'll effectively create a blueprint or a roadmap for the producer to understand how they can best get to. Ultimately, the consumer. I mean, the the ultimate goal is to get as much as possible in front of the right. Chinese consumers for their product, or or other markets around the region, that starts typically with an importer or importers, and then those importers need to have the right distribution network that then gets the brand into the channels and the regions and the outlets that are that are relevant for that producer. But ultimately, the producer will sell directly to the importer. We're not a middleman. We don't get in the middle. We act as representative advocate. Ambassador of the producer, and we also work very closely with the importers. Once the wines have arrived, and Nicole, for example, is very active in this. The whole team is working with a team of salespeople and marketing people of the importer to help guide them and give them information and motivate them and train them, and and then in many instances get out in the field and do events and do tastings and do advocacy. It's all of that sort of combined is the go-to-market side of it. And you also have, or at least I've read, some really great reports from you guys that compile a lot of insightful data on the different markets. How does that fit into your business, and how important is that as a piece of your business? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we try as best as we can to be fact-based decision makers and advisors, right? So it's in so many cases you see. People have been confronted with the smoke and mirrors of the China market, and it's very difficult for them to dissect it and understand it, and and really get down to the facts of the case. So, if we're, for example, if we're talking to a South African producer, we would want to benchmark other South African brands that are in the market, and to do that, we want to know 
concretely, what sort of volume are they selling into China over a three-year period? Where are those volumes going as best as we can? What sort of pricing are they selling at, et cetera, so that we can have an informed discussion with that producer about how are they going to go to market in China and what, what's already being done by their peer group. It isn't just us making claims about the market and that we can refer to import statistics, data, and their peer group of benchmark producers to say, this is this is what your peers are doing in the market. So that should frame what you should expect out of China. So Nimbility Asia handles more than just the mainland China market, but that's the primary focus of Nimbility? Yeah, I would say it's, it's certainly our biggest market in terms of the amount of wine and spirits that we're selling into Asia. And it's, I mean, alongside of Japan, Japan and China make up something like 75 or 80% of wine shipments into Asia. So it's a very, very consequential market. It's a market where obviously Nicole and I have our roots in our wine and drinks industry careers here. So, you know, we have lots of network and all of that sort of thing. So, so China, yeah, China is a central market for us. South Korea has been going like a house on fire. Great, great market for us now. Number two in Asia, actually. Indonesia, as I said before, India, Australia. But yes, I think I would say China is the cornerstone market for us. And it's also where we can provide, I think, the most help and assistance to producers who have the most trouble. I mean, China, China very often is the thorniest, most problematic, difficult market to crack for producers. I think that's true for all industries, not just for wines. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So we want to obviously focus in on the mainland China market and get a deeper understanding of the wines in the market there. So Nicole, maybe you could give us a brief overview of like how prevalent is wine in the daily culture of the Chinese of the mainland Chinese population? Maybe talking about, for example, the per capita consumption compared to 2019 is a lot lower than what we see in something in a European country or the US. Yeah, if you look at data, I think numbers from a few years ago, from 10 or when Ian set up Summergate, that number was 0.2 liter per, per person per annum. So wine is still really quite a niche thing, I think. If you look at China as a whole market, as a, one of the biggest markets in or biggest future market in the world, is still very, very early stage on wine. And we need to look at different age groups, different occasions. The original, you know, the market has been changing so much. For example, back in like 10 years ago, wine was mostly used as gifting, banqueting, a lot of uh, business dinners, uh, corporates, and a lot of uh, hosting, but it was not really for home consumption. And that age group was very different from the age group that drink wine right now in different cities. You know, if we look at China, we can compare China as Europe, as a country. We have different regions, different slots. And then there are places like the coastal cities. You get Shanghai or Beijing where life is quite trendy, is quite, it's very modern. And you have young consumers who actually drink wine, who go to restaurants, who go to wine bars, bistros, and enjoy wine with their friends. And that is a very different group comparing to the other groups. But I think overall, wine is not a daily drink for most people. Even if you know China is a big domestic wine producing country, I think people who actually buy wine and drink and have the habit of opening a bottle every day or a week, or once a week at home is very, very small. 
So the current market, I think, does is still at this early, really early budding stage. That's why I think people see the future is really huge. So if you were to look at the China market as, I mean, obviously it's it's a big. Just like the U.S., it's similar landmass size, but you tend to think of it in terms of different, like first tier cities, second tier cities, and things like that. How would how would you break up if you were explaining the China market to a company who wanted to bring their product there? Would you would you what would be the dichotomy? What would be like? Obviously, you mentioned Beijing and Shanghai, but like where does it go from there? Yeah, so we often do this for a brand when we start to look at the brand positioning, when we set up the strategy for their route market. We look at the brand positioning, where it should be, where it can be sold, actually. Who are the target consumers? It can't be the whole China that is the target consumer. It just never really worked like that. So it needs to be quite specifically targeted. Okay, this is a brand that's premium boutique and it's probably only going to be sold in restaurants, in high premium restaurants and in wine bars or bistros. And that will be locating to cities in the coastal area like Beijing, Shanghai and maybe Hangzhou or Xiamen, all these kind of cities. And then there are some brands that are more for retail oriented and maybe lower price, more value for money and targeting for the retail channel. Then we look at, okay, probably for channel focus, that would be, these are the key channels that we want to look at and they might be national. So it's really depending, we look at how, where the brand should be positioned at. And so just to give a comparison, because there's quite a bit of beer and spirits consumed as well. How would you rate the development of the wine industry versus the beer and spirits industry in the mainland China market? I might jump in on that one. So, I mean, it's the biggest beer market in the world by a marathon, and it is absolutely completely dominated by domestic production. So the large international brewers, the large Chinese brewers, they brew all over the country. And beer is much more of a daily consumption item for a a huge swath of Chinese consumers. So the big difference there, I think, is the difference between a product that is actively consumed on a regular basis at home in restaurants and bars and Chinese restaurants. I mean, you, you can't go into a venue of any size or shape, a food and beverage venue in China and not find a beer offering. And then there's the craft beer segment, which it had a sort of surge of energy. But the challenge for a period of time was that the local regulations related to craft beer production were quite limiting in the sense that the requirement for a brewery to get licensed was the capacity for that brewery needed to be really massive. And so it was just fundamentally contradictory to the idea of a craft beer. So there were a few producers who who sort of found a way to bolt themselves on to a a big brewer and do some contract brewing. Brew pubs were basically the origin of a lot of the indigenous craft beer brands like Boxing Cat, Great Leap, and Jing A, which are three of the more successful homegrown craft beer brands, but they all started as as brew pub brands. And then they would sell kegs to other restaurants, but they weren't selling packaged beer. Like Boxing Cat never became a packaged beer brand until it got acquired by ABI. So, So craft beer, interestingly, kind of got, in my view, kind of got stunted a little bit by that. And it's sort of the development of craft beer kind of got got a sort of punch in the nose 
And then you had a lot of imported craft beer. But the problem there, of course, is the time to market and the shelf life and freshness and all of those kind of problems with a very complicated logistics platform and a very, very big geography with a very complicated inventory pipeline. So imported craft beer face all kinds of challenges related to freshness and shelf life and route to market. So, yeah, but I I think what's important to note, it's a massive beverage alcohol market here. It's a very dynamic beverage alcohol market. There's an incredible food and drinking culture. There are no religious objections. There are, you know, there's none of that sort of stuff. It's a very open beverage alcohol market. And the Chinese love to go out, sit eight or 10 people around a table, get tons of food out on the table and cheers and cheers to each other, ganbei and drink. And it's very social. It's very convivial. And wine is just continuing to. But even though I've been doing this since 1999, Nicole is absolutely right. It's still very early days. And the adoption of wine as a, as a daily item is still, I think, on the horizon. So you imagine how big the China market already is today. So it's roughly 50 to 60 million nine-liter cases, although this pandemic period may dent that number a bit. But basically, the trajectory of the market is 50 to 60 million nine-liter cases of imported wine, and on a trajectory probably to double over 10 or, or maybe 15 years. So you're talking about a market that's already doing 50 to 60 million nine-liter cases at less than two liters per capita consumption and at, at a stage where it's still pretty early and hasn't really been adopted as, as a sort of a regular at-home consumption item. So, I mean, the upside to me is just still ginormous here. Really, really big. So you said 50 to 60 million imported. There's also some domestic production. What's the total scope of Chinese wine? Well, the domestic volume is a little hard to put a finger on because of the way sometimes things are classified here. So, it, you know, we, despite the fact we try to be very data-driven, uh, we, we don't have a very precise number. Nobody does, really. But it's, it's probably 100 to 120 million nine-liter cases of domestic wine. So that includes the really big guys like Great Wall and Zhang Yu and Dynasty and so on. But it also includes a really interesting emerging class of more premium wine producers in places like Ningxia and Yunnan. Yeah, like Silver Heights. Yep, Silver Heights for sure is one of the real pioneers. Grace Vineyard, Cannon, lots of really, and and more and more, Shiga. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of really interesting producers now emerging. And that gives me nothing but hope and optimism for the future of the wine category here. Because there's nothing better than having a really dynamic, vibrant, domestic wine industry here that will stimulate growth and interest and vino tourism. People will start traveling, going to to wineries. Lafitte is making Longdai in Shandong province. LVMH is making Aoyun in Yunnan province now. Very, very premium, highly invested wineries making really top shelf wines. So there's a lot of energy in, in the domestic side of the wine industry here, which I think is great. That's exciting. Nicole mentioned that A decade, two decades ago, wine was only for gifting and mostly for hosting, and that at-home consumption didn't really exist. How is that changing? What's the landscape today in mainland China? Is it still mostly restaurants and bars, or is there a growing consumption at home? Do you have like a split in terms of sense of how big that 50, 60, or plus the 100 
million cases is consumed? Yeah, there's definitely a very big growing trend of consumption at home, going out like younger generations, going out with friends to bars, restaurants for their just for fun, just for no longer like business、uh, banqueting. Of course, the business, the gifting side still exists. I still see so many people on social media posting a picture and then ask, "Oh, I've got this bottle as a gift." Like, what is it? There's so many questions, so many pictures I've seen out there, wine from all over the place, and some are really just crap stuff that is being made, packaged into something nice and used as a gift. There are some real nice stuff as well. But the home consumption part is definitely growing very strongly. E-commerce has been helping very heavily on that, and we have, especially with the pandemic for the past two three years, the whole industry has been shrinking.、Um, restaurants are not able to operate correctly properly. Bars cannot open. But e-commerce on the other side, they are just flying. <laughs> we have customers who reported 2020 was their best year. In history, and then twenty one on top was even higher. So that was something really interesting to see how the market changed and impacted the industry and and the needs. As Ian was saying, you know, the food and beverage in China is a huge culture. Like people love drinking and 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 eating and having the opportunity to buy something easily online when they can check online what this is. And if they don't know, they if they're not sure, they don't buy until they find out. Okay, this is good stuff. Then. There's the access, the easy access for consumers definitely helped a lot on increasing that culture. And Ian, you mentioned a little bit of the challenges foreign wineries have in distributing in China. Do the local wineries have the same struggles, or is it easier? Well, in a sense, they do. Maybe some of the challenges are a little bit different.、Uh, I mean, they're here in China; they are Chinese. So they they're not trying to manage the China market from halfway around the world with no language and all of that. I mean that's those are additional challenges I think that make it particularly difficult for imported brands. But ultimately, and you know Nicole will will, will we talk about this all the time. I mean the the holy grail of the market here is creating consumer interest and demand. I mean that's the ultimate. When you look at the great imported brands that have achieved huge success here, whether that's Lafitte and their branded Bordeaux, or Penfolds, more recently, obviously despite the Australia situation now, or Casiero del Diablo from Conchitoro in Chile, the success that they achieved here ultimately was the core of that was the fact that you had consumer awareness, interest, and demand. Not that they had some magical approach to distribution, or they had some great supermarket contracts, or something like that. I mean, the the root cause of that is. You had consumers across the country that knew Hongmogui, which is Casiero del Diablo in Chinese, or Bunfu, which is Penfolds. They became well-known names. They became well-known brands, and that then the amount of pull that that creates through the distribution network is what really is driving the success of those brands. So the Chinese producers, in my view, the reason I'm saying all that, the Chinese producers, in my view, have a similar challenge. They have to create that same consumer demand. They have to find the way to reach the consumer, gain their trust, gain their interest. It's a very, very chaotic and cluttered marketing environment in China. There's all kinds of noise, and the the digital space is completely unique here. I mean, the digital landscape without Facebook, without Twitter, without 
Instagram in any real way. You have a whole mirror image set of platforms and operators and, uh, and navigating that and finding your way to the consumer is ultimately the big challenge. Now, obviously, route to market and accessibility to the consumer on the right platforms and at the right price and all of those technical things are essential in creating consumer trust and interest and demand. But ultimately, that's the end game is reaching that point where the consumer is, is looking out for, your, for your, your brand and your wine. So when the consumer is looking out for it, do they, I mean, I know there's different segments of the market, obviously, but in general, or maybe in terms of how big each segment is, do they go after the higher end wines or more like lower everyday wines? Because you look at a brand like Penfolds and it's got everything from Grange to like, you know, five, $10 bottle of wine. Yeah. So I think the answer to that is both, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> the extraordinary demand in China for Penfolds, in my view, was not Rawson's retreat at the entry level. They were running at a clip of about 800,000 to a million cases of Rawson's retreat and going out at very aggressive prices and so on. But what was extraordinary to me was the roughly 300,000 nine-liter cases of BIN 407 and BIN 389, which was running at about 400 US dollars, 450 US dollars per nine-liter case. So 300,000 cases of that going into China and still not enough and absolutely not able to meet the demand for those two labels. So, you know, you, again, the answer to that question is both. They just don't have enough Grange. So Grange is an interesting halo. It's central to the story of Penfolds and the, the standing and the stature and the Penfold stands above everybody in the Australian wine category because of its sort of godfather, founding father status of Australian fine wine. But Grange is actually not that big into China. It's, it's not small, but, but BIN 389 and BIN 407 to me are extraordinary and really formed the very profitable heart and soul of the Penfolds business into China when it was at its peak. Obviously, that's all kind of fallen away now. I mean, you said similar for Mouton Coday as well, right? With Mouton Rothschild as the parent company? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, and Mouton has had its ups and downs in China over the years. It hasn't quite captured the hearts and minds of the Chinese consumer yet. I think that's still to come. I know that they're doing some interesting things in China right now. But you're absolutely right. They have Chateau Mouton Rothschild, which does, again, provide that halo effect. But then you have, obviously, the and, and maybe a, a more apt near-term comparison is, is Lafitte, Chateau Lafitte and the Lafitte legend and saga brands. And Los Vascos from Chile, which enjoys extraordinary success in China relative to its stature and, and position in other parts of the world. I mean, Los Vascos enjoys huge demand in China because of its affiliation with Chateau Lafitte. So, yeah, that sort of halo effect that shines down on that commercial range of wines has been a pretty good formula for success in China. The extent to which Almaviva and Don Melchor provide that for the Conchitoro wines I think probably Almaviva is a joint venture with Mouton Rothschild, so it, it's a joint brand, but that's very much part of the Conchitoro story as well. So I think that's a prove. I think we can, I think the jury is out on that one, that it's a proven business model to have that very established halo and then the commercial optimization of that. So I am curious on, well, what is popular in the market? Obviously, it's been a while since I've been in mainland China, but what regions, what wine regions, what grape varieties are popular in the demographics and maybe in a couple different segments? 
Yeah, this is quite a big question. You know, if we're talking, if you're looking at the mass market in China, what's popular, or if we're talking about the small group of consumers who really know about wine or who think they know, or at least who drink a lot of wine, is quite different. Maybe you could use an example from each. Maybe if you say like what's available in like a fairly decent high-end grocery store or versus what's at a fine wine restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So in the, let's say in the more fine wine, the connoisseur group, Burgundy has been the hot bun, we say in Chinese, being chased after in the past two years. Burgundy can simply cannot supply and the pricing has been going over the roof. So that's something really popular. And I think I think that's at the same time is helping Pinot Noir from other countries as well, from New Zealand, notably. There's a big increase on consumption on that and or recognition. And then if we're looking at mass market, it's probably more price-driven. I wouldn't say there is a specific preference. There is probably more recognition of varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon or Shiraz, Merlot maybe a little bit. But the dominance is probably just on the wine style. It's from Chile, from Australia, before Australia was banned. But the fruity style, easy drinking, fresh and value for money, you know, around 100 RMB bottle, that's probably just what people would look for and not specifically say, oh, I want this region only, I want this variety. It's more of the wine style. Yeah. I always get a little bit nervous, Rob, when we get into this conversation because it's actually a very diverse market and there's lots of different types of demand and consumers. I traveled out to Chengdu and I go to the natural wine bars and I see all the cool kids in Chengdu I say kids, I mean in their 20s and 30s, out at the natural wine bars and they're talking about it and they're tasting it and and they're all dressed really cool. So, you know, you see that going on and you think, oh my gosh, natural wine is going to take root. But that's a very particular niche. It's a very particular, very small scale phenomenon at this point. That has yet to translate into anything more broad market. We've also seen in the last couple of years, and and the importers are, are attesting to this with us, much more demand for premium sparkling wine, which is really interesting. So not just champagne, certainly champagne, but also other categories of premium sparkling wine, aged cava. So there's all kinds of things going on here. Burgundy, for sure. Nicole has hit the nail on the head with that. Absolutely. And as a result, Pinot Noir. I mean, I think obviously Pinot Noir. It's hard for people marketing Pinot Noir that aren't Burgundy, uh, (laughs) unfortunately. But the Kiwis do pretty well with their Pinot Noir here. So yeah, it's what's exciting to me is that there's a lot of energy still in the market. I see that there are a lot of different groups of people and different demographics. You mentioned the word demographics before, and different demographics, geographies. I mentioned Chengdu. It's an extraordinary city, and there's so much energy in that city, in that market. You know, 20, 25 million people. I mean, it's a massive metropolis. It's, it's had huge government stimulus over the last 10 years. The economy goes like a house on fire. And they love, I mean, they, the Sichuanese love to go out and eat and drink and hot pot. And, you know, so it's, it's really, there's so much energy there. And I think broadly, if I may make one more comment, what I see is a much more adventurous, generally speaking, I see a much more adventurous wine consumer in China that's willing to explore and discover things much more than in the previous 
iteration of the market where it was all about France and Bordeaux and and sort of conspicuous consumption and and being seen to be drinking something. There's much more blind tasting clubs. I was at Shanghai Lander Nicole a while ago, and and you see you see the blind wine team from Shanghai taking on the blind wine team from Hangzhou, and they've all got their shirts on, and they and they're doing it all broadcast up on a screen. Hangzhou versus Shanghai, and they're going at it, and you know, and they're really serious about it, and you know, you see that sort of stuff, and you think there's there's so many things, interesting things going on here. It's hard to boil it down to kind of the China consumer is after this or that. So, uh, having witnessed the market in the past, I am curious on how difficult is it for grape varieties that are not from France. If you're not the Pinot Noirs, you're not the Cabernets, you're not the Chardonnays. How easy is it for the Italians or the Spanish or other countries that are using atypical? harder to pronounce, harder to translate grape varieties. How are those penetrating the market? Well, for better or worse, Nimbility loves those kind of wines. <laughs> <laughs> so we're marketing Assyrtico from Greece. We've been, for the last couple of years, been mar- marketing Georgian wines. So, you know, we're, <laughs> we love taking those on. But it, it's a challenge. There's no question. The simple solution of origin and grape variety is something easy for a consumer anywhere on earth to get their head around, Right wine varieties that are hard to pronounce and then need to be translated into Chinese. Those are challenges. But, you know, you what you want to do is you gradually build up your following, build up your tribe, create some create some advocates. You know, you really want to get out in front of in front of key people in the market, whether that's a sommelier or more of a lifestyle key opinion leader. Get some people excited about a wine. They start posting about it, talking about it. Social media amplification here is massive cannot be underestimated. And there is a real appetite here for things that are new and fresh and different and interesting. So in a sense, that can also be an advantage if you're a new kid on the block and if you have a story to tell that that is really unique and interesting. And what about, you mentioned sparkling wine outside of Champagne as Champagne prices go up. What about the rosé trend, fortified wines? Are those sweeter wines versus drier wines? Like what are some of the trends you're seeing on with like styles of wines? I think, yeah, as Ian was saying, there's a lot, so much energy in the market, right? So we we take on a lot of challenges, including rosé. <laughs> this is still a very, very small category. It's really niche and we don't have the culture yet. So like people opening the bottle of rosé in the hot summer, most people probably still go for sparkling. But we do see that as the future consumer trend. The, consumer, the young generations, they don't care what they're really drinking. They just, if they enjoy the taste, then it's good. They don't really care if it's a premium white from somewhere or is it it looks good and it tastes good, then that's good to go. So I think rosé, yeah, it's uh, going to it's on the rise. We are we're promoting canned rosé as well. So rosé in a can, really targeting the young, the future generation, going out on a picnic and going out like sitting at the river with your friends, this kind of scenarios. And then fortified, we don't see as much. I think it's kind of just like floating there somewhere. People still drink it, but it's pretty small. Sweet is probably on a similar trend because of the health issue. You know, people enjoy it, but it's not something that most consumers will go chase after. So, Nicole, I'm interested in how important is organic or biodynamic, sustainable, low alcohol, clean wine, all that stuff that's kind of like really talked a lot about here in the U.S. market. How important is that in the mainland China market? Yeah, so I worked for Villa Marie for many years, right? And sustainable has been one of the key assets, key elements to the brand, to all brands from New Zealand and now all over the world. And I think 10 years ago, people don't even know what sustainable is. 
but there's definitely a very big increase on knowledge, on understanding. And I wouldn't say these are super important, but they are they add points to your product, to your brand. If you're organic, if you can provide the fact that you're organic, people definitely choose between choose the organic one out of the others. Biodynamic is very niche. Um, so small groups of people who know it, who like it. Sustainable is probably something across all wineries that we work with. Wineries mostly are sustainable. And clean, I think, it's uh, kind of goes on to the natural wine parts, right? Like the natural wine wineries often claim that it's cleaner, it's better, it's low intervention. So it's recognized by really small groups, but it's not a mass market knowledge. But I think for the future, it's definitely very important. Hey, everybody. That concludes part one of this episode. Ian and Nicole had so much great information that we decided to break this up into two different episodes. So please stay tuned for the second part coming the following week. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau if you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.